I want to also acknowledge this morning um, that Todd and Jen McCoy are here with their family. And uh, Todd and Jen, for those of you that uh, don't know them, Todd and Jen were leaders in our church for several years. Todd, worship leader, they led life group. Um, they really had a profound impact in this church community that is still felt to this day, even though they've moved. And I'm just grateful for you guys. It's good to see you. Um, tonight at, tonight at uh, 6.30, we're going to be praying together back here. We're in the middle of 21 days of prayer as a church, and we're focusing, we believe, our, we believe God's calling us to focus in prayer on our children and our families, and um, not just our children that are represented here amongst us, because certainly that's the case, but we're praying for children, uh, for, you know, there's a battle in our culture over the minds of our young people, and as a church, we just believe that God is calling us to pray about that and uh, pray for that as a church family. And so every morning, we've been getting these texts, if you're not on the list, I would encourage you to get on that. You could text the keyword NRC praise to 31996, and that'll get you on that. And every morning at 8 o'clock, we get a, a prayer text, and it's one of the ways that as a church, we just stay together during this 21 days. So every morning, we get the same text, and we can pray that together in unison. And tonight, we're going to come together at 6.30 here for a special time of prayer and worship together. So please come, bring a friend. Um, it's, we're going to trust God that as we pray, well, you know, prayers, are, I like to say, prayer's not our last resort, it's our first privilege. And uh, so that's, it's just a privilege to be able to pray and to bring, it's part of our role as priests. God calls us a royal priesthood in the Bible. It's part of our role as priests that we get to actually bring the needs of our world to the very throne of heaven. And we get to exercise that privilege tonight. So 6.30, it's going to be an awesome time of prayer. And be here, be square. Although that doesn't rhyme. Be there, be square. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. While you're looking that up, I really believe that what God wants to do today is he, the objective for this morning is to unlearn something. If, I know normally we come to church expecting to learn, but today you're actually going to unlearn something. I find in my life that unlearning is more difficult than learning. Because unlearning requires a level of humility that learning doesn't always require. And once you've learned something, sometimes these things, they settle down in our hearts. And unlearning them is not just telling me that I'm wrong about something. I actually have to change the way I believe, the way I feel. All of that is part of the process of unlearning something. So I think unlearning is difficult. Let me just give you an example. I've seen this in my own life. So I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. I'm very thankful for my heritage in Christ. But growing up, I believed that all Catholics were going to hell because they were Catholic. And that, and that all Protestants... <laughs> you're right. And that all Protestants... I was, and that all Protestants were going to heaven, but really not all Protestants, because 
some Protestants didn't have Sunday night worship services and they were liberal. So they, didn't, they weren't going to heaven. And, and we didn't dance because that would make you lust. And we didn't drink because that would make you dance. <laughs> so, you know, it just... And I got to say, as goofy as it sounds, I can laugh at it, but it's actually quite serious. It took years for me to unlearn those things and to come to the truth. Um, another example is in the church over the years, we've had this thing called the worship wars. And maybe some of you are familiar with the worship wars. For many, for centuries, we worshiped using hymns, the grand, glorious hymns of the past. And we sang our songs, we, we sang our worship using hymnals. And then starting in about the 1970s, in the church, people began to write worship choruses. And those began to be introduced into the church. And then you had this clash. The young people with their worship choruses. The old people with their hymns and their hymnals. And then this really cool invention hit the scene called the overhead projector. That was hot stuff. That changed the whole game, because now you don't even need a hymnal. You can put that on a transparency, it was called, and you can get a 10-year-old to sit up there and flip the transparencies on the overhead, and now I don't even need the hymnal anymore. And you think, well, that's really silly, but do you understand churches were split over that? You get that. That literally, churches were destroyed during the worship wars. And it all came down to, I like choruses, I like hymns. Choruses are better, hymns are better. If hymns were good for Paul, they're good for me. Silliness, but tragic. Here's the problem. When our religious practices become more important than Jesus, we lose Jesus, we lose our ability to influence culture, and we lose each other. When, when we define ourselves by our religious practices, and then we judge others for not agreeing with our religious practices, we turn our religion into a god, and we lose God. And when our religious practices become a god, we've got to unlearn our religion, and we've got to get back to the simplicity of knowing and loving and following Jesus. And this is the message of the letter to the Romans. We've been studying in this book, if you're a guest with us today, we've been studying it for several months now, and we're up to Romans chapter 11. But the, the overall message of this letter has been this. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in the city of Rome. And the church in Rome was experiencing conflict because it was made up of Christians, people from a Jewish background, and people from a Gentile background. And that right there ought to tell you why they had conflict. Because you understand, in the Jewish mindset, it was us Jews and everybody else. We were, everybody else was considered a Gentile. Didn't matter if you were Asian, Hispanic, Caucasian, black. Everybody else is Gentile. It's literally us and the rest of the world. 
you see how that might cause some conflict in a local church. And, and the Jews had assumptions that they were operating with. Now remember, the Apostle Paul was a Jew, a very good Jew, in fact. And so I find, actually, as I study the letter of Romans, that the Apostle Paul sometimes feels a little harder on the Jews than he is on the Gentiles. But maybe he can do that because he's a Jew. You know, you can kind of hit your own people harder. So he's taking it a little easier on the Gentiles, I think, than he is on his own Jewish people. But Paul's a Jew, and he understands the mindset. And he's dealing with assumptions. He's trying to un to break the assumptions that his Jewish friends were making. And they were making three basic assumptions. The first assumption was this. I'm one of the chosen ones because I'm Jewish. The second assumption was being Jewish and following my Jewish laws, well, that's what makes me acceptable to God. And then the third assumption that they made was Gentiles must become Jewish which means the men get circumcised, and they need to start following our laws or God won't accept them. You know, that was actually a real deal in the first century church. They actually believed that Gentiles like us needed to become Jewish in order to become Christians. You think, oh, that's so silly, but it's, it, it was real in the first century. And Paul's addressing this assumption it's clear why there was conflict in the Roman church. Because you've got half the church thinking they're better than the other half. And the Apostle Paul is addressing this. Now last week, we ended Romans chapter 10 with this verse. And I want to start there because it sort of then leads into chapter 11. But chapter 10, verse 21, it says this, concerning Israel. And remember, we learned that, we've learned that as well, that Paul shifts his attention. He goes back and forth in the letter. And you've got to really keep track of that. The one minute he's talking to the Jews, the next minute he's talking to the Gentiles. So concerning Israel, this is a statement for the Jews now. He says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long God has been patiently holding out his hands, making an invitation to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, we read those words, disobedient and obstinate, and we might be tempted to think that that, that means they were really bad because they're disobedient and obstinate. But actually, not at all. Disobedient and obstinate would mean God is inviting them into relationship with himself, and they're insisting instead on following their religion. That's the, that's the context. These guys are not engaging in some kind of dark, seedy behavior necessarily. God is holding out his hands to a people saying, I want to have a relationship with you. He's inviting them into that. And instead, they're insisting on, no, I, I've got to do this, and I've got, I've got to be Jewish. I've got to be a good person. Let me, let me um, put it this way. Maybe some of us are disobedient and obstinate. How do you know you are? Can I give you a test? Here's a little test. I'm going to start with a saying. 
a phrase. If I were to say to you, Jesus is the only way to heaven, you would probably agree with me. Most of you, I see you shaking your heads, probably, yeah, I agree, yeah, Jesus is the only way to heaven. If I was to ask you, let me change it now and ask a question. So, how do you know that you're going to heaven? Some of us, maybe many of us, would say, well, I'm, I'm a good person. Do you hear how those two, those are two different answers to the same issue? And I would propose to you this morning, in all humility, and I'm not saying this to be, um, I mean, it's a heavy statement. But if you think that you're going to heaven because you're a good person, you're actually on your way to hell. That there are a lot of people burning in hell who thought they were good people. Maybe even more who thought they were good people than bad. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, hey, on the, Jesus said on the last day and judgment day, many will come to me, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, which is an ancient way of saying, hey, buddy, whenever you said somebody's name twice, it was a term of endearment. It, was, it meant you were good friends. So Jesus is the judge. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, hey, friend, didn't I do all these great things in your name? And you know what Jesus says I'm going to say to them? Depart from me. I never, I never knew. Who are you again? Listen, it's not about you knowing God. It's about him knowing you. <laughs> the, the point is that he invites us into relationship, and we insist on our religious practices as our way to him. And God says, your religious practices are filthy rags in my sight. You, you can't impress me with your good deeds. You understand that. You do not impress God with your good deeds. God has made the invitation for you and me into relationship with himself. And he's patiently holding out his hands, making that invitation. And so we come to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then, well, did God reject his people? Since they've been obstinate and stubborn, has God rejected them? And Paul says, oh, by no means. I, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So you see what Paul does? He uses himself as an example. Did God reject all the Jews? Oh, well, I'm a Jew. And I have a relationship with God. So if I have a relationship with God and I'm a Jew, obviously he didn't reject all the Jews. So what did God reject? God rejected not Jews. God rejected Judaism. God doesn't reject Buddhists, but he does reject Buddhism. God does not reject Muslims, but he sure does reject Islam. And now let's make it personal. God doesn't reject Christians, but he does reject Christianity. Jesus didn't come to earth to start Christianity. Jesus didn't die on a cross to make you religious. Christianity, that's our mess. Jesus is the one who simply said, follow me. 
We're the ones who turned it into a system. We're the ones who reduced it to arguing about hymns and choruses. You get that, right? We're the ones that have complicated it. Jesus invites us. So see, Paul's point is not that God rejected the Jews. Oh, no, no, no. He rejected the religious system that keeps people from him. And then we come to verse 2. God did not reject his people. Well, there you are. I'm not making it up. Whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to Elijah? Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he uses Elijah as an example, just like he used himself. So Paul says, God didn't reject the Jews. I'm a Jew. He loves me. And he goes back to Israel's history. Elijah, God's, God's like, Elijah, no, I got 7,000 that are faithful to me. So he's not rejected all of the Jews. That's his point. And then he comes to verse 4, uh, or verse 5. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Let me read that again. Those are some powerful verses right there. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Do you see what Paul just did? Paul literally just changed the game. A remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, it's not by works. Remember the assumption, the first assumption that we talked about was, I'm chosen because I'm Jewish. Paul says, no, you're not. You're chosen by grace. See, they think my last name is Fishbaum, therefore I'm chosen. My last name is Rosenstein, therefore I'm chosen. Paul says, oh, no, 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 it's not your biology that makes you chosen. It's the grace of God that makes you chosen. First assumption, that one. Second assumption, what was the second assumption? Was that, that my, by my being a good Jew and following all of my Jewish practices, that makes me pleasing to God. And Paul says to that, what? No, it's by grace. It's not by works. It's because if it was by your works, then it's not by grace anymore. Grace and works, they, they oppose one another. You see, Paul's absolutely radically changing the game on these people. Think about it. How would this impact you if you're a Jewish person? You know that being the chosen people, that's been a part of their identity for a very long time, isn't it? I mean, you, if you have Jewish friends even, they, they still identify, I'm, I'm the chosen, I'm part of the chosen people. And yet here, the message is, you're not chosen because of your biology, you're chosen by God's grace. I propose to you that in that moment, the air got very tense. Because so, let me just paint this picture. Remember, they only had one copy of this letter. 
It wasn't like everybody had it on their phone and they were reading along. There was just one copy of this letter to the Roman Christians, the Roman church. And so it would have come into town. Uh, I guess they would have arranged to have a meeting. So the whole church comes together. And you've got the Jews in the room and you've got the Gentiles in the room. And they would have had a moderator who was reading this letter to the church. And I would say that when it came to this, the Jews in the crowd started to get angry. What? Did I really just hear that? You're saying that I'm not chosen because I'm a Jew? You're saying that? Yep. And I would propose that the Gentiles in the crowd got very uncomfortable because the Apostle Paul just gave them something that they've been told by all their Jewish friends they can never have. You also could be chosen, Gentiles. I think there was tension in the room. His point is simply this. You're chosen by grace. Grace, you receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you chosen. Remember Romans 9, 10, and 11, they go together. We've had to take them separate for our own timing purposes, but you, you can't separate the three chapters because they, they're all part of the same argument. And if you go back to Romans chapter 9, you can see this argument that he's making. It starts in chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Chapter 9, verse 8 says, it's not the natural children of Abraham who are God's children. It's the children of the promise who are Abraham's offspring. Chapter 9, verses 30 and 31 says, Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Chapter 10, verse 16 not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So that means some of them didn't? Yeah, that means some were left out and some received it. Some believed and some didn't. So just because you're part of Israel, nope, it's not a golden ticket. And then Romans chapter 11, verse 7, the very next verse here in our chapter today, Paul says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly... They did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Follow that. The elect among them did receive it, but the others were hardened. You hear the message? You're not chosen just because you're a Jew. There's something else. God's doing something else here. You don't have a golden ticket because your last name is the right name. No, no, no. There's something else that has to take place. So God, basically, the first, these first 10 verses, God basically is rejecting this whole system, this system called Judaism, if you will, and he's, and he's setting it on the back burner, and he's opening up a door. And that comes to, chapter, to verse 11. Let's read verse 11. And I'm going to actually read verses 11 through 24, okay, so we get the whole thing. It says, 
Paul says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, their transgression, that's the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You, who's the you? Who's he talking to there? The Gentiles or the Jews? The Gentiles. I mean, we said we've got to, you got to, you really got to keep track of who he's talking to as you read the text. So you, you the Gentiles, you don't support the root. The root supports, who's the root? The Jews. Okay, the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, who's the they? Jews, the Jews, Israel, right? If they don't persist in their unbelief, look what's going to happen. But they'll be grafted in. You see the issue here is belief. You see that? That's a key element. It's not your biology. It's your faith. It's belief. It's where your faith is located. You follow that? They got cut off because of unbelief. And they'll be welcomed back because of belief. And, and Gentiles... When they got cut off because of unbelief, that made room for you to believe. But don't get all cocky, because if they got cut off with unbelief, you'll get cut off with unbelief. So let's just keep, let's be aware of the good gift that is ours in Christ. Anyway, we'll, let me finish the, the text here. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all... If you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? So see, what Paul does is this. After he redefines what it is to be chosen, you're chosen not by your biology, but you're chosen by your faith in Jesus Christ. How does this happen? We looked at this last week. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 7. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Also, I don't have to be Jewish to be saved. No. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's the message. And that applies whether you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background. That invitation is now open to everybody. So you believe in Jesus? Great. You're a chosen one. But he says, don't get cocky. Stay humble. If the Jews missed it, you can miss it too. Verse 18, he challenges us, right? Don't boast. Verse 22, consider the kindness and the sternness of God. If he cut them off, he'll cut you off too. It's a pretty severe challenge, isn't it? Remember, remember, we're all bozos on this bus. You, as I say, we're just jerks that need Jesus, man. There's none of us that's any better than the other person. When it comes down to it, I need Jesus. And I've received God's mercy. I've received his mercy. And Jesus paid in order for me to have that. And I don't deserve it. I'm a recipient of God's kindness. Are you a recipient of his kindness? Or are you still trying to work your way? In fact, I believe that Paul brings in this picture of the olive tree. You and I, are, we don't relate to it as much, but this olive tree picture, it would have really warmed the hearts of the Jews because for them, the olive tree was a symbol of their national identity. It was a symbol of who they, it still is, a symbol of who Israel is. Um, much like if you, you know, if you, if you put an American eagle next to a flag and you play the national anthem just right, I'm going to get a lump in my throat. And then you put me in a room full of veterans, I'm, I'm going to be weeping. What, what is it about those symbols and all of that that comes together that just wells up this sense of pride as an American, you know? Same, the Jews have the same reaction to the olive tree. It was a symbol of just who they are as a people and as a nation. And so Paul uses this symbol, which would have been near and dear to their hearts, and, and he basically uses it to, to kind of level the playing field in the church. So he says the cultivated olive tree, that's Israel. That's the Jews. But the wild olive tree, well, that's the Gentiles. And the wild olive tree, they get grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Now, you got to see this picture because this will help you understand what he's doing. Here's a picture of cultivated olive trees. Notice Nice, neat rows, trimmed trees, pretty olives hanging off them. Here's a picture of the wild olive tree, of the wild olive. There you go. Look at that. Guess which one we are, Gentiles? You got it? You see what Paul's doing? Hey, Gentiles, you're just that scraggly, nasty, gnarly, branchy, wild olive they got broken off and tacked in. So don't get cocky. That's, that's really what he's saying. Because remember, you remember, you've got, don't, don't lose it. As this letter's being read to the church, you've got to think that the Jewish brothers and sisters in the room are, are reeling from the news. 
you got to think that they, they're, they're upset by this whole, I mean, Paul has taken this, this identity that they've had as a people, and he's just basically taken it away from them, and he shared it to the Gentiles. And so he's got to find some way to try to soften the blow a little, and he brings in the olive tree. And, and now the Jews know, okay, that's right, yeah, we're the cultivated. Yeah, we're the holy root, and the Gentiles are coming in. That's right, you guys owe us. That's right, that's right, that's right. See, he's leveling it out for them. And I love that. Paul's a master teacher, just an amazing teacher. And you say, why would God do this? So, so let's back up. The first 10 verses, God rejects Judaism in order to open the door. The, the verses we just read, verses 11 to 25, opens the door to everybody now. Now we can all be chosen by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And now these next section of Romans 11, Paul answers the question, why? What's God's end game? Why does God do this? And I wish I had time to read the whole section. I'll just read verse 25 and 26. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Is that saying that every Jewish person is going to heaven because they're Jewish? It's not. Remember the context. He's redefined what it means to be Israel. What it means to be Israel is you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That makes you Israel. That, saying that then, all Israel will be saved. Every one of us around the throne room of God, around the throne of God, is there for one and one and only reason. I've placed my faith in Jesus. Jesus made me an invitation, and I said yes. And that brings all of us together. Verse 32, he sort of wraps up his argument by saying this, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. In essence, what Paul is saying to his Jewish friends is, you, you have to get unsaved in order to get saved. Because, see, they come to the table thinking, hey, I've, I'm already in. I'm good. I got the golden pass. And so, no, God has to, buy, buy, he has to give them over to disobedience. They have to see how lost they are in order to be found. That's what he's saying. That's God's plan. Paul, like, unveils this mystery. Why is God doing what he's doing in the world? Well, God is seeking to bring all men and women under this banner of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a work of God, not my good works, his good works. It's not a result of my heritage. I'm not a Christian because my parents were Christians. No, it's God's mercy. It's, we've said it before. There's not a Jewish way to get to heaven and a Gentile way to get to heaven. There's only one way to get to heaven. There's not a black way and a white way. There's only one way. Jesus is the way. And, and there's not like when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a Jewish section and then a section for everybody else. Around the throne of Jesus, God has one family, and it consists of people from every tribe and tongue 
and nation, people of every race and color. And I don't know about you, but some days I get a vision of the bride of Christ, and she's beautiful. She's beautiful. Beautiful. The defining characteristic of God's family is that you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior. If you could stand on heaven's street corner and interview people and say, hey, how did you get here? How did you get here? You would find the same theme in every single one of them. Jesus made me an invitation, and I said, yes. Here I am. I I know I don't deserve to be here. I'm not here because of my good works. I mean, certainly not my good looks. I'm here because Jesus made me an invitation. He said, follow me. And I did. And this truth leads Paul into this outburst of praise as he comes to the end of Romans chapter 11. And I do want to read these. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Does God owe you and me anything? No. Does God owe you anything? I don't, you're not answering. Are you answering? Yeah, no. Does God owe you anything? No, he doesn't owe you nothing. Everything we have has come from his hand. For from him, and that's what verse 36 says, for from him and through him and for him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. You can see Paul just busting out of his skin as he comes to the end, as he starts to wrap his mind around this great plan of God to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation together around the throne in the name of Jesus, like Paul is just busting at the seams with this good news. Wow, the plan of God is stunning. No one can fall so far down that God's grace can't pick you up. Listen, it's possible for you to be too good for God, but you can't be too bad for him. The moment that you acknowledge and recognize your need for a Savior, Jesus is right there, ready to forgive and restore that quick. Which leads me to a question. What will it take for God to get your attention? What does he have to do to get your attention? What does God have to do to shake us loose from thinking that I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. To let go of that, to unlearn that thinking and simply come to the place of Jesus made me an invitation and I said yes. I'm I'm here because of his mercy and his grace and his kindness. That's it. What will it take for you to unlearn To make that transition. We've spent weeks now. Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's, I mean, it's like, this this has been the message for the last month or more. As we've gone through these three chapters. 
you can see he's coming to the end of it, actually. You'll see next time we go into chapter 12, and it's a whole different kind of feel from chapter 12 to the rest of the letter of the Romans. This, is, this right here is a turning point. This right here is a decision point where I say, Lord, I have believed the lie that my religious practices are what makes me acceptable in your eyes. And I'm sorry because that is an affront to your kindness. I have offended your kindness, God, to think that somehow I could be good enough to impress you and to make myself acceptable to you. Everything I have is amazing grace. Jesus paid to give it to me. And so today I simply say, yes. And Lord, if I endeavor to do anything, what I want to do is endeavor to live in your kindness. Let me take us back to this, to that verse. We read it in, in, um, in verse 22. He says, provided that you continue in his kindness. You understand that continuing in his kindness is not working for your salvation. Continuing in his kindness is I'm living with the daily awareness that all that I have is a gift. And all I've done is say yes. I'm, I'm enjoying the kindness of God in my life. So what will it take, friends? One more one more thing as we close, and that's this. You might have noticed two different times in chapter 11, Paul said that God was doing this in order to make his people jealous. Did you catch that? Did that seem weird? I thought it seemed weird. That It said that God was working with the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous, and then Paul says, I make much of my own ministry to the Gentiles in order to make my Jewish friends jealous. <laughs> I thought jealousy was a sin. It is, actually, when I'm jealous for your car, that's a sin. But there is a right kind of jealousy. I'll say it this way. The things you're jealous for reveal the things you're zealous for. So my jealousy reveals my priorities. If I'm jealous over your car, that's wrong, because a car is a stupid thing to be jealous about. <laughs> But if I'm jealous about your connection with God, if I'm jealous about the intimacy that you enjoy with God, about the depth of the relationship that you enjoy with God, if I'm jealous about the miracles of God at work in your life, that's actually a good thing I propose to you. And it's actually part of God's plan to stir up nice, clean-cut religious people like us to stir us up to action. The whole idea is I see God at work in your life in a powerful way, and I'm supposed to go, I don't have that. What, what's wrong? Why don't I have that? I want that. And it's supposed to drive me to the kindness of God, to drive me in my pursuit of Jesus. Does that make sense? See, Jesus has invited me into a relationship with himself and my life starts to look like Jesus more and more and more and more and more. The only way for me to look like Jesus is to hang out with Jesus. 
not to hang out with, not to, not religion. They're two different things. I don't even know how to explain this. But Jesus, religion says, hey, you follow our steps and that'll make you a good person. Jesus says, follow me. And, and, and as a church, listen, like we go to the park here, you know, our outreach team, I'm so thankful for what they're doing. You know, our, our goal in the park is not like, I mean, yes, I'd love for them to be part of New River Church. Yeah, but this isn't the end. Like, our goal is to point people to Jesus. That's what we're here for. And if we don't point them to Jesus, we failed in the mission. Because Jesus is the Savior, not the church. Does that make sense? Jesus is inviting us. So, <laughs> it's, I don't know how to word it. I'm just at a loss for words. So, Today, Jesus is making you this invitation. Hey, friend, follow me. Will you? What will it take for you to let go of the good works and embrace intimacy with Jesus? Okay, Lord, I, I need you. Father, we pray uh, that you would come and do this work in our hearts right now. We confess to you, God, that we have at times depended upon our goodness and our good works, and we've depended on those more than we have on you, Jesus, on our on relationship, on connection with you, Jesus. And I'm sorry, Lord. And so I pray today that each person in this room and the sound of my voice would actually know an, an intimate connection with you, Jesus. You said, follow me. May they say, yes, I pray. Forgive me, Lord, for thinking my religious practices are what make me acceptable to you, because they're not. And I'm so glad for the awesome privilege that I have to Jesus to be called your little brother. It's amazing that you would share the inheritance with the likes of me. Amazing. Thank you. I love you, Jesus. I love you with all my heart. You're just the best. You're just the best. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I want to